Hey, this is Tyler Crook, the co-creator of Harrow County and the creator of The Lonesome Hunters, and you are listening to the Oblivion Bar Podcast. Welcome to the Oblivion Bar Podcast with your host, Chris Hacker and Aaron Knowles. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 146 of the Oblivion Bar podcast, the official podcast of the Fancy Shop in St. Charles, Missouri. I'm your traumatized old man with an ancient sword, Chris Hacker. And joining me this week is my little boy with a wolf mask and an angry wolf mother, my co-host and BFF, Aaron Knowles. Oh, oh. <laughs> don't kill me, mister. Welcome back to the Oblivion Bar podcast. This week on the show, we are being joined by the creator of the Lonesome Hunters over at Dark Horse Comics. You may also know him as the Eisner-nominated creator behind Harrow County with writer Colin Bunn. It is Tyler Crook, everybody, Ba-pow. joining us to talk about <laughs> talking about Lonesome Hunters and also just how he's one of my favorite working creators in comics today. It was uh, such a pleasure to sit down with Tyler and talk to him about the next installment in the Lonesome Hunters not trilogy, but I think hopefully, you know, fingers crossed that it will eventually become a trilogy because this is only the second installment in that Lonesome Hunters saga. So Aaron, you had a chance to actually sit in on this conversation. Did our conversation with Tyler at all entice you to want to check out this new installment in the Lonesome Hunters series? Absolutely. Um, and as you and I were kind of, kind of slightly talking about it before we started recording this, Tyler's talked uh, about his influences and how, you know, and, and, Studio Ghibli, obviously, we just re- recently did our, our uh, Midnight Rewind episode where we highlighted Princess Mononoke. And this one, you know, I see Princess Mononoke being an influence on this as well. And it just, it, it all kind of, it's interesting how it all ties together. The writing style, the art, like all of it together, just, it's a gorgeous story. And you can hear when he's talking about the, the creation of it. Again, I just, I love the, I love what the inspiration has brought him to create. My love of Tyler's work started with Harrow County back in the day. You know, obviously his. You talked and, about that before, yeah. Yeah, Colin Bunn and his run on Harrow County is. It's one of those very easy recommendations to hand someone. Say you've got, uh, I wouldn't say like a, a younger person. I wouldn't give. I would give Harrow County to a ten-year-old necessarily. But like, if you had like a sixteen-year-old in your life who really wanted to like and loved horror, I will say like kind of like a somewhat of a uh, kind of a uh, oh man, I'm trying <laughs> to think of what like what kind of horror this is. Like, it's kind of like a, um, uh, the conjuring, I guess what's, what's like the conjuring type of horror, Aaron, you know what I'm talking about? Kind like, of like, I would say like, like not like necessarily psychological, but almost paranormal horror. Sure. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's a very good way to put it because it is, it is all very paranormal and they do it so beautifully. And it, it, it is kind of a very perfect entryway into the medium in that sense. Mm-hmm. Tyler's work on both Harrow County is a great kind of stepping in point for Lonesome Hunters, which he is, I talk about during uh, with him during this conversation. It is to this point his magnum opus. I think like he is writing, he is illustrating, he is coloring, he is lettering everything he's doing. This entire thing is truly his baby. And I love the first series during this conversation. We talk mostly about the second installment, which is the wolf child. And if for some reason you have not read that you, you can listen to this conversation and I think it will entice you to want to read that because we don't spoil anything in this conversation with Tyler. So let me ask you this, Chris, before we get into the actual conversation itself with him, 
it seems like there's a lot more creator owned like like one man one person creations coming onto the market is that true or is this kind of like a common thing yeah you're i mean you're absolutely right i think what we've been seeing recently is that many more creators have decided that they want to kind of try out their own hand in writing because i'm not saying that one is necessarily easier but there's a very specific skill that takes to do one more so than the other mm-hmm. <laughs> like you couldn't hand you know brian k vaughn a pen and say hey make a comic you know but you could hand daniel warren johnson a laptop and say write a really good story and if he has the ability which we know he does he'll do it right so you can hand tom <laughs> king <laughs> tom king yes uh, he we have we've handed people have handed him a pen and he's made things <laughs> and i think that's that's the best example of why you shouldn't give writers the you know art art material so but Tyler is very different. He is an artist with a capital A is yes. something that I say in this, in this conversation. And he truly is one of like, he's one of the best. And I, I think he is criminally overlooked in terms of like what he is able to provide the medium and what he already has done. I cannot implore people enough to want to, you know, to go out and check out Lonesome Hunter. So before we get in that conversation, Aaron, as we do each week, quick, shameless plug, tell the people how they can support the Oblivion Bar podcast. Yeah, make sure you go check us out, p- patreon.com forward slash Oblivion Bar Pod. Again, for your contribution and support of the show, you have access to The Grid, which is our weekly Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. It's basically the Oblivion Bar After Dark. It's, you know, unformatted. It's untemplated. It's just a good time. It's just kind of where we go off the rails and talk about whatever. We giggle. We gaggle. We gaggle. And we yeah. Google. And we, we'll Google from time to time, for yeah, sure. every once in a while uh early access to these episodes like these main episodes you'll get uh you also get a special shout out at the end of each episode you also get access to the episode transcripts so you can see what we're going to be talking about before we actually you know release the show and honestly it's just the best way to support the show and also now there's even an added benefit if you're listening on spotify spotify has made it so you can listen to patreon exclusive episodes just by clicking the banner underneath the show Mm -hmm. at the top of our spotify page to subscribe yeah, patreon.com forward slash Oblivion Bar Pod. Great way to support the show. Enough shameless plugs, Aaron. Let's get into our conversation with Tyler Crook. Hey, everybody. Our sponsor for today's episode is G Fuel, the official energy drink of esports. Whether you're a casual gamer, a content creator, an everyday Joe, or an esports pro, G Fuel's sugar free, antioxidant, and vitamin fortified, focus enhancing, and high performance energy products will give you the edge you need to fuel your grind. No sugar, no gluten, no crash, just natural, clean vitamin energy that's available in over 40 lip smacking flavors. While stocking up at gfuel.com, use our code OBP at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's OBP at checkout. G Fuel performance energized and now this week's special guest joining us this week on the show is the co-creator of the murder mystery petrograd with writer philip galat the comicsology original stone king with kel mcdonald and the mega hit eisner nominated series harrow county with writer colin bunn More recently, he has been playing in his own sandbox with the supernatural Dark Horse series, The Lonesome Hunters, the story of a powerful sword and the old failed monster hunter who wants nothing to do with it. It is my pleasure to welcome Tyler Crook onto the Oblivion Bar podcast. Hello. Glad to be here. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. I wanted to kind of start off the conversation 
talking about, we had an interview back during the New York Comic-Con time frame. We had David Dasmashian and Leah Kilpatrick on the show talk about Headless Horseman. And, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. most listeners to this will know that you actually illustrated that little mini uh, subsection of their story. They had nothing but great things to say about you. What was that, you know, experience for you? Um, that was great. They're just really fun to work with. I mean, that's, it's such a, like a little, little project. It's sort of the thing that like, you know, that was like two weeks, you know, in and out on that thing, but they were like really open to really collaborating with, with me as the artist. And, um, and that's actually the, the one I listened to. Oh, the, the podcast oh, the, I listened the to. You listen? yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> as soon as you said that, I was like, that's the one. <laughs> We were talking before we started the recording and he had, you know, Tyler had mentioned that he was listening to an episode of the Oblivion Bar before he came on, which is always smart for, you know, creators or whomever to kind of get a feel how the show goes. And we were both kind of going back and forth about which episode that was that he had listened to. It makes sense that you chose Leah and David because you've worked with them before. Yeah, they were really great. And they were really sort of, um, and they even said in that interview how I had some reservations about some of the early versions of the script and they were just really, mm-hmm. really open to sort of hear me out and, and going back and forth on how to improve it and stuff. And yeah, they were, yeah. they were just great. I and mean, they're both just like really, um, you know, fun and enthusiastic yeah. and, and like, they just seem to really love the process as much as, as I do. So it was like, uh, it was great to work with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's very refreshing, you know, cause David of course is a giant star in Hollywood and then Leah has her own, you know, deal in terms of like being a megastar on the internet with her cosplay and her YouTube channel and everything else. Mm -hmm. And when I say refreshing, I mean, it was refreshing that they were both genuinely loved the medium of comics and they weren't doing it just to have a little fun side project. You could tell, uh, you know, Leah, but also especially David, how much he loves the medium of comics and how much he is like a true champion of it, even with his, you know, again, giant status as a movie star. There was a thing he posted on Instagram. I think it was from around New York Comic Con too, where he announced a project he was doing with um, Todd McFarlane. And if you mm, can go find okay. it on his Instagram, the little announcement video they did was so cute because you could see <laughs> David Destmalchin, this um, like cool ass you know movie star, and he was mm-hmm. just grinning like a little kid. Like he was just so stoked to be standing next to Todd McFarlane and talking about a, a comic book that they were going to be working with. <laughs> Yeah. I think the Todd father would give us all of that kind of, you know, yeah. reaction. If we, yeah. we had, a, if we had a second to just sit there and, and stand next to the man himself, I think we would all kind of react the same, but I, I want to get into our conversation here a little bit. And I want to start off this conversation with a quote as you do, you know, uh, in his book, the visual language of comics, Neil Coe says it takes a bevy of voices to make a good comic. And yet Tyler, here you are with the lonesome hunters. And I think it's important that people reading this series and listening to this conversation understand that you are an artist with a capital A. You're writing, you're illustrating, you're coloring, you're lettering. Everything with The Lonesome Hunters is all you. So my question for you is, has tackling this series solo been a freeing adventure for you? Or have you found the difficulty and the challenge uh, to drive you a little bit, that little bit more? You know, it's one of those things where it's like the, the experience is not uh, what I expected it to be. Um, going in, I really thought that it would be, um, it would feel a lot more free and, and um, I don't know, like spontaneous and like, sure, whatever. And it really was like, once I started really digging into the story, it was like the story was actually the boss, you know? So I wasn't like able to do anything I wanted to do. I had to do just what the story wanted to do. And so, and that, in that respect, like, 
yeah, it's hard to call it freeing, but it has been like incredibly fulfilling working like sure. this, um, being able to do it all by myself. I mean, for the one, for one thing, like I tried really hard with all my books to bring like as much of, you know, my personal experience and passion and storytelling stuff to, to every project. But, um, essentially I'm always telling the story that a writer has written, you know? So it's been really, really, um, like just really cool to, to be able to do something where it's like the origin of the story comes from, from my own, like, feel like a goober saying it, but like from my heart, you know, it's just like from my soul coming out and it, um, and that comes with its own challenges too. Cause it is like, it takes a lot out of you and it's, and it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I love that you say that because I've heard you talk about this series in other interviews and it, people will ask you a very similar question as I had just asked you just now, kind of about your process and things that, you know, maybe influenced you or things that you keep in mind as you're writing the story. And I love how most of the time your answer is just like, that's what the story needed, or that's what spoke to me. You don't really, it, mm -hmm. it's almost, and I don't, and I don't mean this in like a negative way, but it almost feels like the story is guiding you in your process. Like there's not really any preconceived concept you are just going where the story takes you well i wouldn't say that there's no preconceived concept but i would definitely say that it's like um it's like i started out with a story like each of the two story arcs so far it's like i really started out with you know aiming my little story arrow at a target and then mm -hmm. you know i end up hitting a target you know a couple targets over but it's the right one you know that's the one that i had <laughs> sure. to hit <laughs> well, and, and kind of along with that, and I'm sure again, fans of yours will know this, but you use mostly, you know, watercolor airbrush. How long does it take you to do each one of these issues of, you know, we'll say Lonesome Hunters, but also Harrow County and, and other projects that you've done? Um, Lonesome Hunters has taken me longer than um, Harrow County. It takes me about two months to do a single issue. Um, wow. That's yeah, so that's, breaking that down. What is that? Uh, you know, it, you do four issues per arc, right? And then, mm -hmm. so is that, so is that like two and a half weeks per or two weeks ish? Per oh no, issue? no, I'm sorry. It takes me two months per issue. Oh, so it's oh like, I'm so sorry. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, wow. <laughs> okay. never mind. Yeah, so I about, just heard the answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's about eight weeks to do, oh, to do a single issue. So doing a, doing a, a four issue arc is about eight months of work. That is, I mean, it shows, obviously. I, I was going to be very impressed if you had maybe said anything less than two months, but that that is truly <laughs> impressive. Well, when I was doing Harrow County, I was cranking those out. Um, we were on a six-week schedule for those. And, oh, sure. Um, I was really tearing through. But also, like, I don't think I took a full weekend for, like, three years while I was working on that book. It was... <laughs> Keeping that schedule was really rough. So like my eight weeks uh, for Lonesome Hunters has included weekends. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of that, you know, you obviously the Lonesome Hunters is a beautiful book, but as was Harrow County and a lot of your other work, it, it's almost one of those things where when you see a Tyler Crook piece, you almost immediately know that it's you. What were the shortcuts if you if you had any or what what type of like, I don't know, I, I want to try to find a better word than shortcut, but how did you keep within that six week window when you were doing Harrow County? It <laughs> just like really like keeping a schedule like that is really just um, brute force. You know what I mean? It's oh, like sure. you just like if you, you basically work out your schedule, you work out what you need to accomplish in a day. And if you don't um, if you don't hit your quota for the day, you just work into the night, you know, and you wake up the mm -hmm. next day and you do the same thing. Really, the, the thing that I've gotten much better at is um, I don't have a really good name for it, but just planning days to not accomplish anything like whenever i work out my schedule i give myself a few extra days for when things go off the rails you know 
because it, it happens all the time where it's just like, I'll be coming to the studio, ready to get started, and there'll be an email sitting there that takes me two hours to work through. And then once that's done, then there's something else that I have to do. And like, and then, oh, the this thing I have to mail out, so I have to go all the way into town to do it. And and it's like, you know, it's um, those days just come out of nowhere sometimes. And so it's like you have to plan for them. Otherwise, you're doing what I used to do, which is just work <laughs> every friggin' day. I love that Harrow County has become, you know, in one way, it, it feels like a, definitely a poster child for your career thus far. Mm-hmm. But it's also been like maybe one of your biggest lessons thus far in your career. And, you know, kind of speaking on your career leading up to this point here, now that you're, you know, we're here at the Lonesome Hunters, I would actually love to hear a little bit about your relationship with the medium itself. You know, I've, I've heard you talk about before that you grew up loving comics, but you initially worked in video games. Can you recall the moment you decided to make that switch from video games to comics? Um, there were a lot of those moments. I made that decision a lot <laughs> while I was oh, doing sure. while I was working in video games. And um, the way it usually went down is that, you know, I would have a really rough day making video games. I'd come home and be like, you know, I got to get out of this industry and I got to start working on this thing that I really would have always wanted to try. And, you know, I'd work on making a comic for, you know, maybe two weeks. I would work on it at, you know, on nights and weekends and just sort of lose, um, you know, after a while you just lose steam on that. And I'd be like, well, making video games is a pretty good job. Like, mm-hmm. why would I, why would I leave this? But the last time I did it, it was because I, um, I had started a company with some friends, me and some, some of the guys I worked with at Sony, we he had all quit together and started a, a game company. And we just weren't quite making enough money doing that for me to keep it up. And I had quit and I was doing some contract work and I was just sort of, I'd had, I really had it, you know, up to here with video games and was like, it just wasn't working out for me. And, um, and I remember like laying in bed one night and not being able to sleep and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And years ago, when I had done a previous attempt to get into comics, I had gotten um, in contact with, uh, at the time, he was the editor-in-chief at Oni Press. Um, God damn it. And I do this every time I have an interview. Like, (laughs) names just leave. He he went on to edit um, Bob Shrek. How could I forget Bob Shrek's name? So, uh, like, I just remembered Bob Shrek. Like, I was like, I had talked to him, and he was, like, really interested in my work years ago, and I had just never really followed up. And so, like, I remember climbing out of bed at 3 in the morning and being, like, just going to my computer and Googling Bob Shrek and seeing what he was doing and where he was at and discovering that he was um, at at DC at the time. And then um, I just started – I actually found an interview – with him and listened to it and then started listening to a bunch more interviews with other creators. That was, this is like the first time I discovered um, the comics podcast scene, really. Ah, so we know that quite was, well here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and this was, this had to have been 2008, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I just started like listening to all these podcasts and I was, you know, hearing really for the first time, all the stories of like, how did you get into the industry? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time for me where it was like, oh, actually, this seems like a, the sort of thing a person can actually do. Like, like I kind of get it now. And actually going through the whole process of starting a company and having to go out and do like try to pitch games to publishers and all that stuff, like all of that experience, like really um, had I had learned a lot from that and was sort of um, at a place where I finally understood how to be like 
if I want to do a comic book project, I need to be able to show someone, one, that I have already done it, that I can do it. And then I also need to like not walk into the room and be like, what do you have for me? I need to go into the room and be like, here's what I have for you. And yeah. that like that basically I was just finally set up for it. So um, so that was when I, I made the choice, actually, was that, that. I did. Uh, I started writing a story um, that I mean, it'll probably never, ever see the light of day, but it was sort of just slice of life stuff. And I put together about 12 pages of, of that. And um, I flew to Portland for Stumptown Comics Fest and showed my work to uh, James Lucas Jones, who was the new editor at Oni Press. And he was actually like, you know, I have a script on my desk that might be just perfect for you. And that was Petrograd. So that's oh, yeah, of course. sort of how that went down. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, and also I, I've heard you say before that Petrograd was one of, the, very, in a very similar way to Harrow, Harrow County, that you were working yourself to the brim just to keep that, you know, keep the schedule. And and I think you said at one point that had you known that you could do it in a shorter way or an easier way, you would have, I, I can't remember exactly how you put it. You may remember what I'm talking about here. <laughs> I, I probably said that if I had known how hard it would be, I probably wouldn't have said yes to it. That That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, like, I, I really thought that I could do that book in one year. Yeah. And, uh, and it was two and a half years was what it took. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also to go back a little bit, I love the idea of just you and your coworkers at the, at the, you know, at Sony kind of leaving image comic style. Like, you know, you've got like Tom McFarlane, Jim Lee, <laughs> Will's Pistachio, all these people. And then it's just, you guys just walking out, give, and walking across the street to EA sports, giving them the middle finger, walking over to Bethesda, giving them the middle finger and be like, we're starting our own shit. Man. I wish it was had been as cool as that. Like, no, it was more like, um, we were just at a studio that was sort of imploding and we were just like, oh, sure. <laughs> we, were, we were closer to like rats jumping off the ship than like, um, you know, than like yeah. Todd McFarlane yeah. <laughs> hitting a home run or whatever. Well, and you know, and, and I think back to your time on, you know, BPRD and again, Harrow County and now here with the Lonesome Hunters. And while most of these books have, you know, horror elements to them where I think you really shine. And, and again, this is my, this is my soft pitch into us getting into finally Lonesome Hunters, which is again, while we're mostly here, that's what we're here to talk about. You really shine when you get to like have a soft moment with our POV characters and dealing with the, you know, truly the horrors around them. So my question for you is, do you feel like you get more satisfaction with those smaller moments with say Emmy or Howard or Lupe, or do you prefer to explore, you know, the more ghoulish side of these horror stories? That's tough. Like I definitely have a, like a real sort of profound love and attraction to those like quiet character moments and, and that stuff. But, um, in horror stories, for me, at least, the way I like to approach them, it's like those moments are absolutely critical to the the horror elements. Because you have to really like, like, I, I feel like you're not going to be, when you put characters into these horror situations, you're not going to be as worried for them if you don't really care for them. So it's like you have to, and to care for them, you have to know them and you have to understand them at some, on some level. And so... Um, so those those quieter character moments, I think, are absolutely critical for the the larger scares to work. You know, it's like without that contrast, it's just not you. You just can't feel it as much. Um, mm -hmm. It feels a little rambly, but um, yeah, it's like um, I can't remember who said this. Somebody somebody I know is like, you can't have a song that's just like a guitar lead from like the first bar to the end. It's like you have to 
build up to that <clears throat> sick guitar lead. Otherwise, the it doesn't actually mean anything. It's just like noodling, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's like you know, a crescendo means nothing if all it is is a crescendo. Right? Yeah, you exactly. have to have the build up. If you start crescendo and you end crescendo, like, and it's just three minutes of crescendo, then yeah, it's you have to actually well, and, you know, go somewhere. Yeah, well, and you know, kind of along with that, I, let's finally get into you know not only the the Lonesome Hunters, but specifically the Wolf Child, which is mm-hmm. the next arc, the second arc in this story. And you know, fans are loving this. I specifically love it. I know a lot of fans of yours that you know maybe came from Harrow County or. Uh, from uh, your other previous work as well. This is like for anyone listening right now, if for some reason you have not read Lonesome Hunters, but also specifically the most recent arc of Wolf Child, this is very much your bag. And uh, just for kind of the layman, I'm going to go ahead and give like a, a synopsis here, if you will. So an old and out of practice monster hunter is hiding and cross or in hiding crosses paths with a young girl, forcing him to confront these chaotic creatures. But car trouble leaves them stranded in a small town that's being terrorized by a magical wolf and a mysterious child in a wolf mask. While waiting for the car repairs, Lupe befriends the wolf child and she and Howard are drawn into a war between the townspeople and these deadly beasts. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why specifically you chose to follow up that inaugural arc of the Lonesome Hunters with this mysterious boy and his dying wolf mother that is trying that he's trying to protect. Well, at the original... Um, I guess like seed of inspiration for this was uh, like one of the, the titles I was actually thinking of what before um, we decided on Lonesome Hunters was uh, to have something to do with um, being raised by wolves and trying to build on that um, idiom or whatever. That's one of those things that I just kept thinking about, like what it was, what it would be like to be raised by wolves. And so then um, I was like, okay, well, what if we had a kid that was raised by a wolf and like how, how would that play out? And I was sort of just thinking about it. And I, I sort of had this vision of this kid in the, who was raised by a wolf. And so he wore a wolf's mask to, to, you know, become a wolf. And then I also had like a, this really strong picture of this wolf or this, this kid trying to protect their parent. So I had the, this picture of my head of the wolf. Um, you know, you meet them in the, in, in the first uh, issue uh, where the, the wolf mother is sort of like, laid up being sick. And so that, that, that image was really strong in my, in my head. And so I sort of built it around that, but also then knowing that I had, um, another important thing to do with, with this series was the first story arc, um, of the Lonesome Hunters was really about Howard and Lupe sort of coming together as a, as a duo and, and heading off on their larger adventure. And Mm -hmm. with this one, I really wanted to create a scenario where we could see, why the sword is a dangerous thing, which I I don't know how much I can. I'm always so so worried about like spoilers. Like I'm not a person who cares about spoilers, but I know so <laughs> sure. many other people do. <laughs> I was going to ask you how how much you wanted to dive into this story because, for again, as coming from someone who's read the entire uh, you know both arcs, and I'm, I'm assuming I'm hoping that most people listening to this, uh, if not already interested, have already read it. I would love to talk a little bit about maybe some spoilers here and there, but what, what are your thoughts? Do you want to kind of keep it re- relatively spoiler free or let's, let's try to keep to it. Let's try to keep it re- spoiler free as much. Sure. As we can. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. So I have a question <laughs> <laughs> based on what you had just talked about there. And I, I've heard you kind of talk about this a little bit in other interviews is how people in this story, there's almost like a power of the mask. Let's say like mm-hmm. people who wear masks, there are certain powers. I'd love to hear you elaborate on that because 
you know, in this story with the wolf child, I don't necessarily see any powers from him outside of his, uh, you know, his, his, you know, relationship with his mother, who is an actual wolf. Um, well, I think that the the mask idea is really inspired by um, a lot of like North American and indigenous religious uh, stuff, where there's a lot of, you know, um, and it's kind of widespread among different cultures, but there's a lot of, um, you know, you go to the dance, you put on the mask of the wolf, and then for the purposes of whatever ceremony, you are actually the wolf. As long as you're mm. you're wearing that mask, you are the thing. And so that was that was really sort of the inspiration of a lot of the the mask magic that happens in in this series. You know, animals putting on masks to become more human, and humans putting on masks to become more more animal. And um, and yeah, I mean, it, and it also works, you know, as a metaphor with just like how the thing you want to be, you put on a mask to become it, mm-hmm. and then eventually either you become fully that thing or you're always wearing the mask you know or you take off the mask and you go some you know somewhere else <laughs> well yeah. and i love that um so while reading this and I, I again hearing you talk about it before my favorite band of all time is daft punk and i often think about how no one knew who daft punk was or cared really even until they put on the robot mask and then be- they became uh and i and i think the reason for that was because they wanted their music to be about or they wanted Daft Punk, they wanted to be about the music. They didn't want mm-hmm. to be celebrities. They didn't want to be known out in public. And I think that's ultimately why they decided to put the mask on. But in reality, it also gave them an identity that people, you know, I mean, I have, I have, I don't know if you can't see it or not, but I have their, the masks on my arm. Like I identify <laughs> not only mm-hmm. to the music, but also to them as artists. Uh, and I just love the idea of how, like you had just said, like putting on a mask sometimes gives you, gives you a little bit of power that maybe you didn't have without it. Yeah, no, it gives you power and it gives you freedom and it gives you um, it gives you a way to define yourself like with with greater intention. You know, when you're mm-hmm. walking around just as you're, you know, in your normal day to day clothes, you might not actually um, present, you know, because like, yeah, it's just I guess it's just like an intentional presentation of yourself that is like what's so strong. I mean, who's that guy who wears like the dangle mask and the cowboy hat? Oh, I don't know. I am not. I'm not familiar. He's some some pop artist, and um, and then uh, MC Doom is that his name? Yeah, MF Doom. Yeah, yeah he he actually MF passed away Doom, not yeah. too long ago. Yep, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, and then he has like the mask. Know, Dead Mouse has a mask. Uh, yeah. There's, I mean, there's plenty of folks who, again, they they put on the mask and they. It's almost like they become themselves in a way. Yeah. <laughs> insane clown posse <laughs> of course yeah yeah slipknot like oh, there's kiss, so many you know like kiss they, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah you remember like when kiss took off the makeup and it was just like oh it's just a bunch of dudes under yeah. there like that i think i don't know i'm not formulating the correct response to this but there is a again a, there's a certain amount of identity again speaking on daft punk but kiss is a better example i think because daft punk's never taken off their masks at least not in public mm-hmm. but like kiss very much uh, if I remember correctly, if I remember history correctly, they it faltered, like their image faltered when they took off the masks. But when they painted their face again, they were kiss again, you know, the, yeah, Gene Simmons yeah. and the blowing the fire and and all of that. You know, I can imagine there are probably some women out there who don't, weren't attracted to them without them, without the paint on too. like they, <laughs> yeah, they probably sure. got more women with the paint on than they did without. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I love to, you know, we talked about how we're not going to talk a bunch about spoilers, but if I can kind of dance around a spoiler and, and still uh-huh. ask you a question that I think is is very important. There is a moment in issue four of The Wolf Child 
that uh, something happens with Lupe. She, um, again, I'm being vague here purposely, but she, she does something. And instead of Howard, who had been the entire, throughout the entire issue, say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. She does it out of instinct. And yet, instead of being like, I told, I told you so, he is very, almost immediately forgiving and comforts her right there in that moment. What did that moment and ultimately kind of like that last issue, again, avoiding spoilers, for the wolf child arc, what did that personally mean to you? That um, is really important about Howard to me as a character. And that's that Howard um, comes from a background and his relationship with the sword is comes from a place of really sort of abuse and trauma. And so when he... When he gets, yeah, it's so hard to talk about without like just saying <laughs> what, dancing, what actually happens. Like, <laughs> but the 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 thing about him is that like he he knows like how messed up the, having the sword is, and mm-hmm. so like when he sees someone else learn that for themselves, he empathizes with them incredibly strongly. And you know that's the thing about Howard and Lupe. I, there's a there's a moment that is really important to me from the, the first story arc. And it's from really early in the first issue, but it's when Howard and Lupe sort of meet in the stairwell and they just look at each other. Yes. And nothing like really happens, but in my mind, at least what I was trying to get at was like, these two can just understand each other. You know, they yep. see themselves in each other. They see their loneliness. They see um, how, how much they need someone else. And they just recognize it in each other. And I think that's the thing with Howard and Lupe is that Howard recognizes himself in Lupe and, and is, you know, so I guess, I guess maybe his, his thing is like when he's like consoling Lupe, he's probably consoling himself at the same time, you know? Yeah. And I love that panel too, that it's basically, it's a wide kind of a wider panel and they both just say Mm -hmm. hi at the same time. And then there's like two panels of them, like a singular front shot of both of them. And it's a silence, almost mm-hmm. like they don't know how to react to it. And then, of course, Lupe's father, you know, being the monster that he is, kind of forces her upstairs. But, yeah. you know, her uncle. I think that bring- or, sorry, yes, her uncle. Yes. So uh, and I think this is a, a great transition into a quote that has nothing to do with the Lonesome Hunters at all. But I think it fits. And it actually comes from the vision in Captain America Civil War. And he says, strength incites challenge, challenge incites conflict, and conflict breeds catastrophe. And I feel like we are seeing this exact same situation with Howard and this sword. You know, the moment he pulled out that blade from the box in that first issue, he and Lupe have encountered the magpie queen, the wolf child, and his mother. We keep getting glimpses of this mysterious man who, again, I don't, everyone listening right now, I've read the entire series. I still have no idea who this mysterious man and man is <laughs> who claims that the sword is actually his. So Tyler, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about how Howard, who is clearly very uncomfortable with the blade in his hand, how do you think he plans to face these growing threats? Um, well, he doesn't. I mean, that's the thing about <laughs> the thing about these characters is that they are like, you know, there's like, you know, Wolverine is the best of what he does and and all this stuff. And Howard and Lupe are both the worst possible people to have these problems you know they are not they're not set up for it they don't have any of the answers you know they didn't go to ninja school to figure any of the stuff out ahead of time they're just um really just muddling their way through these issues so like the 
And the thing is, like, Howard got this sword, and it has, you know, the very first pages of the first issue of the first series, you you mm. find out how this sword, like, really has messed up his life. And he's been, like, stuck for most of his life just trying to hide the sword. And so, I mean, for him, the solution, like, the only way out is through for him. It's, like, the only way for him to actually get beyond the sword is to pull it out and deal with all of the, the fallout that comes with it. Begrudgedly. Yeah, and I don't even think he realizes that's what's happening when he starts, you know. Sure. He's just... Like, when it starts, he's just, like, trying to solve this problem that Lupe has with the magpies. And he's willing to, you know, take a great risk to, to do that. So, like like I said, he just doesn't have, have any plan. He's just, they're just really trying to, to figure it out as they go along. And I think that that's, um, to me, that's, like, way more interesting than watching, you know, like, watching John Wick be the best assassin ever. It's like, I would rather see... Um, Jackie Chan do the thing where he accidentally like falls over and the chair flips over and hits the guy <laughs> accidentally, you know, like yeah. that's way more fun and interesting and creative to me. So, so that's what the story is. It's really about these two people who don't know what they're doing. And it has a lot of um, consequences because of that, really. I mean, all they have is each other. I, and I think that's, been, yeah. that's essentially known from the jump. Almost as soon as you start reading the story, you know that both of these broken people all they have left in the world is the sword and each other. And yeah. I think there's something really beautiful about that. Uh, I'd love to hear you kind of expand a little bit about what this relationship is between Lupe and Howard, because Howard, I think in a couple of times in the story, he has a chance. He like tells Lupe outright, don't you need to go away? Like, this is not your, this is not your deal. You don't have to deal with it. But yet he keeps like leaving openings up for her to join or, or come back or, or what have you. Uh, yeah. Mm. Can you explain a little bit about like what that relationship is between them? Well, between them, it's, I mean, it's friendship. It's like they, um, <laughs> well, it's like, it's partly just like friendship, but it's also the thing where it's like, they're in a situation where they need someone else. Um, mm -hmm. And really there is nobody else. So even though it's not always the, um, the most logical or like, it's not the thing that like their therapist would say like, yeah, go do that thing. <laughs> you know, It's like, it's the, it's the choice that they have ahead of them, you know, like that's the, right. the best choice that they have in front of them to, to move forward. So it's like their friendship is like, like a fun codependency. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, and, you know, it's like when you, um, when it's in some ways, it's like when you go to a, a new school and you're like wearing your punk shirt and like, there's only yeah. one other kid at the new school who has a punk shirt. So you like, end up like being their friend. And it's really just because you both liked the same band, you know? Uh, yeah. In some ways it's, that's how it is with Howard and Lupe where it's like, they're both just in the same boat. And, and so they find that, that friendship together. I find that very interesting because I actually wrote my thesis about this in college about how as humans, we are, will often seek out the smallest amount of connection with folks. You know, like if I go over to England and I don't know if I'm just by myself and I see someone sitting at the bar across me wearing, you know, a Spider-Man shirt. That is the smallest inkling of a, of a bridge that I need to go over and at, at the very least say, Hey, I like your shirt. And that yeah. creates a, a, you know, a line of communication. Uh, and, and we do that every in our everyday lives. If I'm at the grocery store and I see someone wearing a, 
you know, a St. Louis Cardinals hat that I'm wearing right now. I'm gonna be like, Hey man, Cardinals, man, they weren't, they didn't do well this year. Did they, they were not on top of it. Like they normally are. We're just often seeking those small, small connections. And I think Lupe needing Howard in that moment might've saved Howard in a, in a way, like almost a life of irrelevance and kind of uh, solitude. Like it's not fun, but maybe he needed it in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that thing you're describing is something uh, comic book fans, I think in particular can really understand. And it's like the, the word I always use for that is fellowship. It's like, Hmm, yeah. you, um, and that's what like, you know, comic conventions are for. That's what, um, that's what podcasts are for, even, you know, it's like, it's to sure. find that fellowship and to, um, yeah, just connect on, on stuff. And that's the human thing, right? Like we are definitely, um, social animals and we have to, um, we have to find that connection. I mean, that's, that's like the real like tragedy of, um, dudes like incels and, and that stuff where it's like, they've sort of have chosen this philosophy that is antithetical to finding like positive fellowship. And instead they sort of rely on this, this negative fellowship they find online and stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Aaron, my co-host and I, we often talk about like, why do we love the things that we do? We're big movie fans. We love podcasts and we love comics. We love, you know, you know, video games, all the nerd stuff. And I think at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is connection. Like I go to the movies and I, I love film because I feel like I'm having a connection with the story. You know, a lot of times yeah. a connection with the story is and music. You could say the same thing about music. There's a certain, there's a, a dopamine drop that you get directly into your cerebellum that you just don't get from anything other than like things like that, that you absolutely love and you connect with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just love the idea of that. And it the connection between Lupe and Howard is known immediately. And I, I love something that I've heard you say before on, during other interviews is that you didn't want to mess with the bullshit of them not getting along or them having some kind of stupid issue that would take a five minute conversation to get over. You would just <laughs> immediately have them getting along, needing each other. And I love that. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Well, yeah. And I think the thing that... um that I like about their relationship is that it is like, it's consistent from the jump. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a, it's not, neither of them are capricious about it. And neither, neither, neither of them are sort of playing some sort of game with it. It's like, they both, they both see that they need each other and they grab onto one another and that's <laughs> the end of it. You know, they're not going to let go. Sure. Well, Tyler, I'd love to round out our conversation here with one final question. Uh, you know, again, like I said earlier, the Lonesome Hunters has been a crazy success for both you and Dark Horse. And the trade for the Wolf Child is actually coming out on February 28th. Mm-hmm. So I want to selfishly ask here and, um, you know, of course, be honest here. Don't give us hope if there's none. Should fans expect more Hunter stories in 2024 at some point? Probably not in 2024. Um, I am actually writing uh, the third story arc, but we're really... Um, we're in the position where we're waiting to see how the trades do before um, Dark Horse approves the next story arc. So everyone should definitely buy <laughs> the the Wolf Child when it comes out. And um, the first uh, story arc is going back to print, and um, and so there should be plenty of those available. But yeah, pre-orders and stuff are hugely helpful. Pre-orders are. I don't think people realize. Everyone listening right now, if you're you know if you go to your LCS every Wednesday and you have like an active pool. Pre-orders are truly the determining factor for a lot of this stuff. So if you love a series or, uh, you know, you want to support something, pre-ordering is unfortunately, I think a lot of times the the bar that these companies need in order to yeah. green light anything. And, uh, you know, again, if this conversation offers anything, 
it should be that the wolf child and just lonesome hunters in general should be something you should be uh, pre-ordering and supporting and loving like, like we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. You know, and also like, I don't know how much the listeners want to hear about like industry stuff, but like with the new, bring it on. We, I, I want to hear it. I don't care what they don't want to hear. It. I want to hear <laughs> with, it <laughs> with all the new distribution stuff going on. It's been really, really hard to, you know, get the word out about books and really get, get people excited about them. And it was much easier when there was diamond distributors and that was it. And you could look in previews and, and, see every book that was coming out and, and all that stuff. But it's um, it's really sort of, we're in this weird moment of the Wild West where I know that there's a lot of really, really good books out there that um, are having a hard time getting the traction that they need. And when you pre-order a book, um, I pre-order books all the time. I pre-order records all the time. And if anybody who's not into it should know how amazing it is to like have the fun of buying a book and then like three months later, the book showing up and being like, what's this? And you get that thrill all over again to get, have that, <laughs> to get it for the second time. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, listeners of the show here will know that I am often a, I was a hypercritic of previews, but also specifically diamond for a long time because I worked at a comic shop and there were many a times, I would say there were very rarely times where something didn't come either missing or broken from diamond. Mm-hmm. I mean, that being said though, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, Back in the day when you could just pick up a previews, you know, you pick up the big book of previews each month and you also have the Marvel and DC one and you just mm-hmm. sift through that thing each week. It was perfect. And All FOC was like final yeah. order cutoff was such a clear like mm-hmm. marketing point for everyone. It was like everyone. Yeah. And those days are just gone. Yeah. It's almost like we're doing the streaming wars, but with comics as well. Like everything is so scattered. And <laughs> at some God, point, it's something is. Bad. something at some point is going to come along and re congest everything back together. Hopefully I'm my fingers crossed, of course, but um, yeah, yeah, Tyler, thank you so much for joining me here today on the oblivion bar podcast. It was my pleasure. I mean, honestly, it was so great to have you here talking about lonesome hunters. Uh, I can't wait to see what you have planned for this next arc, whenever it eventually does come out. And um, you know, I'm going to pass the baton off to you. Uh, Is there anything that you want to highlight or any socials you want to plug before we head out of here? I guess the big one to plug is that I've been doing a live stream on YouTube every Friday night. Um, so it's mm-hmm. actually, as soon as we get done recording this, I'm going to start setting up for that. And then um, every Friday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time. And then I'm on Blue Sky and I'm on Instagram. And that's kind of the only places I'm at right now. I, I post to Tumblr occasionally and stuff. Um, sure. But if you just search for Tyler Crook, you'll find them. And it's all those links are on my website too, mrcrook.com. I was going to say, you know, visiting your website, I, I saw, I love the the blog part. You had a, an October mm. blog post where it's basically just you talking to the reader, uh, you know, like cartoon <laughs> version of you. And actually I didn't realize this again, because previews is all over the place and you never know who's in what, but uh, I didn't know that you were, you did like an anthology story through uh, DC ghouls just want to have fun. You did a Re- Renee Montoya yeah. questions uh, story, which phew, like, if Aaron was here, he would tell you how much I love the question. So that's going to be on my read list, reading list going forward. Oh, nice. That one was really fun. I wanted to do stuff for um, DC for forever. And um, mm-hmm. and it was great to finally find something. I mean, there's, it's always really hard to schedule stuff if you don't, if, you know, you don't have a big enough lead time. So, but that was, that was like really, really fun. Yeah. And I just had, uh, uh, this did a variant cover actually for um, a Hellblazer book. Yes, the Swamp Thing soon. one. Yeah, that I'm yeah. really proud of. That, again, again, if Aaron, like, if there's two characters in the DC universe that I absolutely adore, 
the question and Swamp Thing. So when I saw you post about both of those yeah. things, I was like, I mean, I got to bring it up at some point because those are and they're awesome. So. Uh, Tyler, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it. I'd love to have you back on, uh, you know, at some point down the road, talk about more Lonesome Hunters or just, you know, whatever you're working on at the time. For sure. Yeah. Keep in touch and we'll, we'll get back together sometime. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tyler. Thank you. All righty. There's that conversation with Tyler Crook. Thank you so much, Tyler. If for some reason you're listening to this right now, thank you so much for coming on and talking about the Lonesome Hunters. I find the relationship between Howard and Lupe just so compelling and I cannot wait to see what happens next to these guys. We talk about it during this conversation. I tried to bait Tyler into telling us if we can expect any more lonesome hunters this year. And he seemed slightly apprehensive. And I totally get it because as again, he said in this conversation, it takes him a long time to just do one issue. So the fact that we got four issues in the last six months is a good deal. We said it earlier, Aaron, go read the lonesome hunters, go check yes. out Harrow County as well. And just honestly, anything that Tyler does. Yeah. Hats off to Tyler Crook for, for being able to create like all of this by himself. Again, uh, I, you know, I asked you before the interview if this is a, a new thing and I think that you kind of, you, you explained it well. I think that the thing that I'm kind of like excited about is it, it seems, especially in our last few interviews with creators who are making their own, like their own comic completely by themselves. It seems like now we're coming, we're coming to this point in the comic industry where, Maybe before you couldn't get a comic book out really if it wasn't with the big two. You know, now there's such a big industry and there's so much availability to create your own thing that a lot of artists are able to unabashedly create what they want to create. And I'm loving it. I'm just in awe of his art and the fact mm -hmm. that he can write as well while doing that art is just, oh, it's fucking beautiful. Yeah, you're absolutely right too. We are in a new era of comics where you don't you know what it used to be was truthfully that you would have to go to a Marvel DC, make your name. And then maybe, maybe you can make your own creator own stuff and make a little buck on the side. But nowadays there are plenty of creators, many of which we've had on the show here that just don't necessarily have any interest writing Spider-Man or writing Batman. They want to tell their own stories and I don't blame them to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm kind of somewhat in a new era myself, you know, I, I still read the big two. Of course, I love these characters. I have a freaking silver surfer tattoo on my arm, but I have found that recently small press has been much more my speed. Yes. I really, <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's my love of the medium. It just grows exponentially as time goes on. And I appreciate the craft of someone being able to tell the story that they want to tell and not only just tell the story they want to tell, but they own it, which is so awesome. Like that is, that's just like truly the dream I think for a lot of these creators. So you're 100% right, Aaron. Tyler Crook, the, the way that he's able to tell Lonesome Hunters at Dark Horse and it be his still is a good deal. So that'll do it for episode 146 of the Oblivion Bar podcast. Once again, thank you, Tyler, for coming on to the show. Next week, Aaron, are you ready to talk about some sandworms? Because Hell we are yeah. heading back to Arrakis, baby. Get your spice. The spice. The spice. Um, get your weird worm uh, <laughs> people. Get, call, call them up. Put on your put on your best uh, desert suit. Yep. You become a hose in the nose. Yeah. Blue eyes and and you know let's let's go back to Arrakis. <laughs> Actually, I think where's what is the spice planet? What's it? Called? It's not Arrakis, is it? Is that Arrakis? I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, you're right. Just kidding. Uh, we got to work on your whispers too. You got to work on your yes. your weird whispers. <laughs> what, what's the, the thing that uh, Lady Jessica does and the uh, oh, see. 
everyone prepare yourself for this review because Aaron and I's knowledge of Dune is, oh man, it's for me, I guess I'll speak for myself. It's very few and far between. Like it's, it's the movies and part of the first book. (laughs) I'm going to go back, watch the first one. The original David Lynch one. Yep. David Lynch. I'm going to watch the new first one. David, you know, yep. Yep. Uh, and Timothy Chalamet. Old Timothy. Old Timothy Wonka. Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm excited for this movie. I'm not yeah. like super excited. I'm not I'm not like crazy excited, but I am looking forward to this film and I know it's gonna be I know it's gonna be like epic. I was gonna say, how how are you gonna watch it? Are you gonna try to get an IMAX screening or are you gonna maybe go to Adobe Theater of some sort? I don't even know if there is like an I'm I mean there's got to be an IMAX You're in New York dude you yeah can go, there's what are you talking about you can literally watch like apparently like the largest remember I told you we we saw Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania at the yeah. fourth largest screen in the US New York has number one and number two so if you wanted to see this in like the largest way possible I think you could okay. somewhere oh the Lincoln Square okay so I yeah Lincoln Square does have an IMAX theater. Okay, cool. I will probably try and watch it there. Lincoln Square, yeah. it is one. That's actually where I'm going to go see uh, Kung Fu Panda. Nice. Yeah, and and actually the 70 millimeter version of these of the of uh, Dune Part Two is available at these larger IMAX screens, which is part of the reason why I want to go to the IMAX Museum Theater that we went and saw Ant Man at. So more film, it's better. We love it, and I and I've heard nothing but good things about this movie. Everyone that I've heard from. You know, good friends of the show, Comic Book Couples Counseling, they posted last night that they were able to see it early and they loved it, apparently. So uh, very excited. We'll cover that next week on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening to our episode here with Tyler Crook. Aaron, take us out of here. All right. Subscribe to our podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Audible, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, that's where we will be. Thank you to our patrons, Alex, Alice, Aaron, Cassidy, Christy, David, Elliot, George, Greg from First Issue Clubs, Haley, Ham6, Botter from The Short Box, Jake from Spectales, Jake S., Jason, Jeremy, Kyle, Losey, Mac, Miles, Mike, Robert, Travis, and Brad, Leeds, and Couples Counseling. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, and Threads at Oblivion Bar Pod. Thank you, Omnibus, for sponsoring the show. Use the link in our show notes to upgrade how you read comic books digitally. Official merch of the show can be found on our website, OblivionBarPodcast.com. Thank you, Kevin Ziegler, for all of, our, all of our Oblivion Bar art. He's at the Zig Zone on Instagram. Man, I'm out of breath. Thank you, Dream Kid, for all of our <laughs> musical themes. Thank you, DJ Skyvac, for our grid theme. Thank you, Fantasy Shop, for sponsoring the show. And last but not least, do not forget to tip your bartender 20% or more, or... We'll send you to Arrakis. We'll send you to Arrakis. We will destroy you with a giant ancient sword that I hate, kind of. To work the spice mines. Spice mines. Alrighty, everybody. Thank you so much for listening this week. We will see you next week for episode 147.